Oaths Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, and welcome to a new episode of the Thoth Hermes podcast. This is episode number six of season seven, and we are Sunday, October 3, 2021. My name is Rudolf, and I am, as always, the creator and your host of this show. My guest today, well, it's the big return, it's the big return of Tobias Churton, and Tobias is really the record holder on this show. It's his fourth appearance in this Thought Hermes podcast, and there's not a second one who has done even three, so he's really, he's really the leader. But um, I mean, he is now publishing soon his 27th book, and there is so much to talk about with him, and he's such a clever guy, and he knows such a lot about our topic uh, our topic, of course, which is the world of the Western esoteric tradition. It's always a joy and pleasure to talk to him as it was this time, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy again. Well, welcome to this podcast. Welcome if you're here for the first time, but also a very special welcome all of you, and there are many of you who return here each week. Thank you for your feedback. I always like when I get messages. Just got a very nice one a few days, a few minutes, sorry, ago uh, once again. And uh, well, do not forget to send me your music. Uh, if you're a musician, if you are a practitioner in the world of the Western tradition and are performer or composer of music, um, I'm always happy to know, and we have had a a lot of people already who did that, and we've played a lot of that music. Not today, today's different kind of music will be with that in a moment. But it's always really nice to have your music and play it in this show. Well, this show, you find all the details on its website, www.thothermes.com. That's T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. And while we speak about feedback, go there and leave me a message on the contact form or a voicemail while you're at it. You can leave a voicemail on my website. Isn't that great? And of course, there's always Facebook or Twitter and regular email info at thoughtshermes.com. On the website, you will find all the details about all the available episodes. There are, well, it's number 98 today. You know what's coming soon, the 100th episode. So stay tuned with us and continue to listen to this show. And yes, now you know what's coming. And while you are listening, consider becoming a patron. Thank you to all of you who are patrons of this show. And yes, well, we'll need some more. I cannot keep returning and saying it all the time enough. So please consider become a patron either by one-off donation on the website, on the donation button, or by becoming a patron on Patreon. 
you have a Patreon button also on our website, or you go directly onto Patreon and look for the Thoughts Hermes podcast with $1 per episode as a start thing. You are already with us. And of course, um, yes, well, you you will now start getting also little extras. Last weekend, we had that very first trio, as we call it, where Greg Kaminsky and I interviewed together uh, uh, our guest Jack, uh, Jack Dunning, and that was live, and you could attend it live, and could have asked questions. Nobody did actually, but um, well, it would be nice if you did when they were paid more. So, if you're interested in that, become a patron, go there, and become one of ours. Well, before we go into the interview, as always, we're going to listen to some music. And as I said, this time, it's a bit of different music this time. It's classical music once again, from time to time. You know, that's my background. From time to time, I want to do some, play some classical music. And um, well, here we are today. Very special music, I believe. It's of course related to the show because we're talking a lot about hermeticism today and even if the three pieces I'm going to play today are not declared as hermetic music, they are very much so um, in a link to the hermetic world. So the first piece is a French organ piece by a French composer of the 20th century called Jean Langlais. And he has written music, organ music, um, very gothic, very, very strange sounds, very slow and um, a bit creepy for some, but not for me, but some people find that music creepy. Well, whatever. It is very organized music, very strict, very um, geometric in a way, even if he doesn't mention that in his writings. But uh, so I think for a show about hermeticism, which is basically the main topic of the interview with Tobias here today, um, I thought he would be a good fit. So the first piece we're going to hear is called uh, number one from eight pièces modales, modal pieces, a bit hard to translate if you're not a musician, a modality is a type of um, type of scale in music. So, uh, huit pièces modales, he wrote eight modal pieces, and this is the very first of them by Jean Langlais, and it's performed by an organist in an Austrian church, actually, in a small Austrian church, which has a very nice organ. And uh, we're going to listen to that now. And after that, I'll come back to you and tell you more about my talk with Tobias Jurton. And of course, then you'll hear the interview. But for now, Jean Langlais, huit pièces modales numéro un, performed in an Austrian church. Enjoy.
Eight modal pieces, number one by French organ composer Jean Langlais. I think quite a good entry in a subject around ancient wisdom, hermeticism, and the time when science and religion were one. Because that is the subject of the book by Tobias Jurton, who is our guest today, the book named The Lost Pillars of Enoch. And I warn all of you who thought it's about Enochian magic. No, it's actually not. The Lost Pillars of Enoch are something very particular, um, antediluvian, so to speak. And uh, Tobias, in the very beginning of our interview that's going to follow, will explain its background. And um, as always, I would like to read to you a few lines from the book Tobias wrote. The book uh, appeared actually already back in January. It's his latest book. And um, it's a very dense volume of 300 and something pages on a travel of esoteric and hermetic knowledge and its roots through the ages until the 20th century. Very, very interesting. So let me read two paragraphs to you where he lays out a little bit what we are mainly talking about in this book. Our contemporary idea of progress, fostered out of the so-called Age of Enlightenment, is dismissed from the Prista Theologica point of view as being mere forward movement into the unknown, a void. Such movement constitutes no deep drive, is weak as motive, and represents no true, ardent spiritual desire. We gain nothing by rushing forward into nature. Rather, according to the testimony of the priestly theology, we make genuine progression toward our deepest goal by looking backward, to where the spring of being is most pure, its source. In point of fact, there could have been no modern scientific revolution or progress had the Renaissance period not glorified ancient knowledge and begged their and subsequent generations to look to past achievements exoteric and esoteric. The return of Hermes in translations by Ficino and other men of time kick-started a movement that encouraged a Leonardo along with an era whose major ambitions brought forth remarkable men in almost every field of endeavor, people fascinated by what had been inscribed on the ancient tablets in purer times, men with the vision to take up the tablets again, to absorb their supposed contents and then, in due humility, with a deep thirst or desire for experimental or experiential knowledge of the truth, add to them, secure that at last a sure foundation had been recovered from the debris of time. It would lead back to the future. That's the mainly the principal thought, one of the principal thoughts of the book and also of our talk here today. And I'm sure you'll greatly enjoy that. I won't keep you longer. We'll go to meet Tobias again in his home in the south of England and uh, meet him there. And um, we will come back in a bit over 30 minutes, 33 minutes and 37 sections. seconds, actually, is the first part of that interview. Okay, and uh, then we'll come back and we'll play some more music. But now, 
off to Tobias Churton's place in the United Kingdom and off to a gentleman who I really always love to talk to. Let's meet Tobias Churchin. Here comes the interview. Well, it is now somebody here with me on the Thought Hermes podcast who has been already on this podcast for three times. So you're absolutely the record bearer, Tobias Churton. Good evening to you. Hello and welcome back here. Good evening, Rudolf. It's a delight to be with you again. Well, as it's always been. Thank you. The delight is all mine, and uh, also with our audience. As far as I can see, uh, figures when they listen to your to your interviews, they really seem to like it. And well, I'm sure they have good reasons for that. Um, we have been talking about several things um, already. We have been talking about two of your Alistair Crowley's books, uh, in and uh, the last time that we spoke was Alistair Crowley in India, I believe. And that was in May 20. So it's it was about time that you returned to this show. And today, well, at least let's say we kick off with a subject that um, I guess knowing you and me when we talk, we will open a bit up later on into more general subjects around the world of the Western esoteric tradition. But the subject of the talk in the beginning, at least, will be your I think it's still your your last book. It was published already in January this year, but nothing so far has been published. It has been written, I know, but no, not published. I have yet. a new new book, new book coming out in January. Right, but we'll talk and, about that in uh, the end, Tobias, about yeah. the coming things. But the book we talk here today is the Lost Pillars of Enoch, and. Uh, to those of you who now think of Dr. John D, etc., I must immediately say it's not about Dr. John D. <laughs> well, um, maybe Toby, you could start by telling us a little bit of the background, what those lost pillars really are. The subtitle of the book is When Science and Religion Were One. We go into that a bit later, but um, those lost pillars, um, what are they? I believe many of our audience might not be able to kind of get their mind around that. Yes. Well, everybody knows the book of Genesis, don't they? And the story of Noah, <laughs> the story of Noah and the ark and the great flood. Um, now, the Jewish historian Josephus, writing in about the 80s, that's about 50 years, a bit more, after the crucifixion uh, of Jesus, uh, started writing his book, in Rome called The Antiquities of the Jews. And he included, what he tried to do was to write an urbane, civilized version of the Jewish history of the Septuagint. But he also included other elements where he could, where he thought the history would enlighten his mostly Roman or Greek-speaking audience. Mm -hmm. And one of the stories he relates in his history as history, he doesn't, he doesn't say it's a myth or anything like that, is that the Sethites or the children of Seth, um, who was Adam's best chance after Abel was slain by Cain, yeah. uh, Seth becomes the inheritor of wisdom and his progeny, his, his ancestors, 
remembering a prophecy of Adam that the world would be destroyed by God by either fire or by water, um, perhaps both, decided to put all their astronomical knowledge and really their knowledge of the universe, everything they knew, on two pillars. And one was built of brick, which, uh, and the other was built of stone. And the one was built of stone in case a flood destroyed the brick pillar. And on the pillar was written all this knowledge. Now, this story doesn't appear in the Bible, but uh, Josephus expects it to be understood. And that he's really saying to the Romans, there was a providence that protect, that has provided a conduit, a passage of knowledge from the earliest times to those who survived the flood. And he, but he then says at the end of this account, um, everybody knows what happened, of course, there was the flood. He says that this pillar, one of the pillars, remains to this day in the land of Syriad, and that's an anglicized version of the word he uses, which is uh, in Greek, which is mean, we'll get to this in a second. Um, now, the English translation of this passage that has become probably the most influential in scholarship mm. was translated by Isaac Newton's colleague, William Whiston. And he took the word Syriad uh, or Syriad, as it's written in Greek, he thought it meant Syria. Mm -hmm. And uh, he presumed that the pillar being referred to um, was actually one erected by the pharaoh Sesostris. And so he casts a historic doubt on whether the pillar referred to by Josephus was in fact the pillar. Uh, but in fact, wisdom was wrong also because he followed Herodotus, the 5th century hist- Greek historian, and he got it wrong as well because the pillars he refers to that he thinks are um, Seth's pillars, as he calls them, um, uh, they were in fact from uh, minor kings who were ruled by the Hittites. And, uh, and, and so, in fact, he doesn't really know. But the point is, The important point is that the tradition went that this surviving pillar was in Syria. Now, if you get... The reason this error has come about is because Wisdom was using the Latin version of Josephus, which was published by Froben in the early 16th century. And Froben puts it in basic good Latin that it was in the land of Intera Syria, Mm -hmm. Syria. But if you go back to the earliest Greek version on which Froben had used, it is uh, Integes, uh, I can't, I've gone out of my head, <laughs> Seriad, Seriad, mm-hmm. and the Seriadic land, which is not Syria at all, because there are, there are quite a few, I, I can think of nearly half a dozen references to Syriad, referring specifically to Syrios, the star. Okay. And what the word means, Sariad, is the serious worshipping lands. Mm-hmm. And which are the serious worshipping lands? Of course, we know that Sirius was of central importance to Egypt. Egypt yeah. And so the first part of the book is let's locate, can we locate the pillar, the lost pillar, later called the pillar of Enoch. 
or the pillar of Seth. That's what I was going to ask. Why did That's they get the, the name of Enoch into that? Because we know Enoch, of course, from the Bible, but also in a very particular context, especially in, 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 the, in the Western esoteric tradition, right? Well, this whole project came about because I was contacted by Gab Professor Gabriel Boccaccini mm -hmm. of uh, the University of Michigan, who runs a thing called the, the Enoch Seminar, which is an international body of scholars who study se Second Temple Judaism and the origins of Christianity. And the Book of Enoch, as you probably know, the famous Book of Enoch, um, is in fact the most reproduced book in the whole so-called Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm -hmm. So the, I was asked to do a, uh, a paper for, uh, for, for their conference a couple of years ago in Florence. Nice place to do it. <laughs> totally, um, yeah. about, the, uh, about the Masonic, the Masonic, Freemasonic reception of the Book of Enoch. And that was great for me because I'm fascinated by the Book of Enoch and I've written about it in my book on John the Baptist. And uh, here was an opportunity to really get to grips with this problem, um, not only of Enoch in Freemasonry, which is a certain part of the book, but the whole history of Enoch altogether and why Enoch has been identified with Hermes Trismegistus. And this is where, that's why we were on Thoth Hermes, because Thoth Hermes, Thoth was the Greek god of magic writing, as called by uh, George Sinkelis, the Byzantine uh, writer, as the first Hermes, and the second Hermes is the one figure we know as Hermes Trismegistus. And by the 10th century, Hermes Trismegistus had become identified by Arabic scholars, particularly uh, with Enoch. Mm -hmm. And so we, we have this whole combination. We've got Josephus talking about a Sethite pillar. We have a, an Enoch tradition coming out of Jewish esotericism. And we have the development of the Hermetic uh, uh, writing and its influence as well. And I thought, well, let's unpack, let's try and unpack all these strands and show how they work. And it, that was the real fascination of the book was to show and to reveal, I think, uh, clearly for the, I think, the first time, the the real genesis of the Hermetic writings. I mean, there are some major questions which none of the evidence will give us an answer to. Did The real question here is, did Josephus get his pillar story from the Hermetic texts in Egypt? Mm -hmm. Or did the Hermetic texts in Egypt write about Hermes transcribing tablets before the flood uh, in the Kore Cosmu book. Do you, you know the Kore Cosmu? Yeah, sure. In the Hermetic writings. Yeah. Did he get, is that an Egyptian, Greco-Egyptian copy from the Enoch myth? Or does the Enoch myth, especially as interpreted by Josephus, in fact, is it a steal from the Greco-Egyptians? And so we're really talking about the origin uh, of Hermeticism itself. And Enoch was actually bound up with this, this mysterious question from the beginning. And it is interesting that scholars by the 9th, 10th century were already saying, well, we can't find a difference between Enoch and Hermes. They must be the same person. Already and that early that, they would say that, right? 
Yeah, oh, for sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, by, by the time we're talking Roger Bacon, 13th century, early 14th century, in England, Enoch and, and Hermes are the same person. Mm-hmm. So, uh, hence, this very great interest that grew up in the Book of Enoch, which, of course, disappears from Western scholarship. And uh, by, by the end of the Roman Empire, it's disappeared. People have heard of it, uh, but people haven't seen it. There were various um, quotations had been taken from it. And, of course, we don't see it until James Bruce goes to Ethiopia in the 1770s and brings back a copy. In fact, he bring, brings back four copies, and um, which Bruce himself denigrates as, you know, you get the feeling it's hardly worth his trouble. He thought it was just rubbish. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't translated into English and published until the late 19th century. Um, and the main version was R.H. Charles, which I think was in the 1860s. Yeah, yeah. I think the first English translation was actually made in the 1830s, but it wasn't published. Um, there was a copy in the Vatican. Uh, Louis Louis the Fourteenth was given a copy. The King of England was given a copy, and James Bruce kept the other copy for himself. The book was written in Ge'ez, the the literary language of of, of Ethiopia, mm-hmm. as it was in the eighteenth century. Um, so we really t- it's an incredible story because it brings in the origin the origins of of uh, Hermeticism. It's connected with profoundly connected with the origins of Christianity and uh, of Western esotericism entirely. So it was a delight for me to, to be able to get all this into one book and talk about the future of religion and spirituality as well at the same time. It's a complicated story. And I would think for somebody who wasn't actually interested in it, it would be a hard work trying to work out um, to follow the detective story that is that is trailed in the book because the basic what are we talking about the basic idea here is that before the flood in antediluvian times in an ancient time before the great civilizations that we know about Sumerian Egyptian so forth there was a time when the knowledge of the universe and the substance of religion were, were identical so to know that to, to know about the universe was religion to know religion was to know about the universe according to the lights of the time and that that, that is a very interesting uh, theme that runs through the book because this idea of an antediluvian united science and religion is picked up through history and galvanizes of course as we all know in the in the 15th century florence it galvanizes into the um, perhaps over overstated um, view of Francis Yates, uh, but I think it's 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 not just a matter of Francis Yates and Giordano Bruno and the Hermetic tradition. No. I, I think it, it's it's even by then it had become a staple idea that there was more in Egyptian tradition anyway that that, that Christian scholars should be interested in, and and that of course flourishes then after the. Yeah. after the Renaissance in so many ways or we wouldn't be speaking about it why do you Have think that terribly complicated no it's not not at all I, I must say I mean it's, it's fascinating uh, the book is uh, an intense read I would say it's 300 yeah, pages I didn't, I didn't pull any punches I'm afraid no, no, no. it's 300 pages so which is extremely little for 
for all that is expressed in it and as you say even there is even an out view for 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 into the future at the end um but um let's go back why why do you think i, I mean, should tell you something about that by the way rudolph why is it 320 pages roughly uh, it's because the 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 cost of paper today uh, the publishers um i'm i'm now limited to 90,000 words whether i like it or not that's because of the conditions of the well, not hermet the non-hermetic world the, we live in. The fragmented uh, world the, we live in, yes. A publisher can't afford to operate uh, anymore with, with esoteric material without some restriction. Hmm. And uh, I'm afraid I have to accept that, like I have to accept showing a passport at a border or something. Right. It's just, just part of it. Um, I could have happily written seven or 800 pages. I'm sure, yeah. Uh, but I don't think it would be a better book, funnily enough, because the discipline, the discipline of trying to put a man in a smaller pair of trousers at least makes him diet. Yes, and I mean, it's, that's all a question in the arts as well. If, is an opera that lasts four hours better than an opera that lasts one and a half hours? No. It's, I'd much rather two minutes myself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but... <laughs> um, The figure of Enoch, I mean, he, uh, he is a very specific figure also in the Bible of, well, in those small things that where he appears in the official Bible, he's taken away by God, it is said. Mm. And that is something that leaves a mystery around him in a very specific way, doesn't it? Of course. I mean, it says uh, um, for God, he, he doesn't die. Yeah, exactly. He doesn't even, he doesn't even get resurrected. He doesn't die. Yeah. Uh, he, Enoch walked with God and God took him, you know, that's, that's what, in other words, he, he is so in tune with, with the divine uh, that his transition to an eternal realm is automatic. And of course, naturally it took some time before that generated an esoteric interest, yeah. although we don't know there may have been one before. Um, if we say that Ge Genesis was compiled perhaps in the 6th century, roughly, mm. uh, from the man manifold sources and was subsequently edited and so on, <clears throat> it takes, you know, about, about 300 years, perhaps 400, for the, the Enoch to be looked at. And he's looked at in exactly the same way that I would say that the Gnostic Uh, writers of the Gnostic Gospels started to look at controversial figures of the Bible. Mm. He's looked at as, hello, what's this little mystery here about Enoch? You know, Isaiah doesn't mention Enoch. You know, Jose, uh, Amos and the prophets don't make a big fuss about Enoch. Are we missing something? Here's this guy that God took, and he, he had become associated Uh, with a knowledge tradition, how much Kabbalah was was in existence at that point? I an esoteric tradition. We know we really don't know. Yeah. Uh, you know, were were the Kabbalists right to say that there was the two traditions? There was the legal tradition, and there was the un, the unspoken or uh, should we say privately spoken tradition of spiritual interpretation? Anyway, they pick on Enoch. I think they're right. They, they create him by the, by the time of Jesus. He's become an extraordinary figure associated. Really, he's an emissary of God to the world. Um, but he's not, he doesn't, this is the interesting thing. Enoch in the book of Enoch does not address 
us. He addresses the powers that rule the world. Yeah. He addresses the, as they're called, the watchers, the fallen beings. And he, in the story of the Book of Enoch, in the first part of the story, they, they've, they've kind of imagined a lot more to the Genesis account, which is garbled anyway, about the giants and the Nephilim yep. and all this. And they've created a systematic story which fits the apocalyptic uh, viewpoint of, of people at the time. And Enoch becomes um, a kind of Jonah figure who's sent from heaven with a message to the evil Babylon, which is the powers that control the world, that their time is up and Azazel will be judged and they will be bound. And as I wrote in my book on John the Baptist, I think that the itinerary of the book of Enoch is the itinerary that Jesus followed. Yeah. Uh, namely that the prince, the rule of the prince of this world um, was coming to an end and that God's uh, truth and purposes would, would be enacted universally. Uh, now, what is fascinating is at the very time the book of Enoch is a kind of hit book, a hot, hot work um, of great, I think of enormous influence, uh, you have the seeds, at least, to the beginnings of this hermetic soft gnosis, I call it soft gnosis. <laughs> um, yeah, gnosis light in a way, uh, but also very powerful, which doesn't present so much an apocalyptic end of the world, mm. but a, an inner apocalypse that each individual must face yeah. as they are reborn in the crater hermetis, in the hermetic bowl and they're baptized in the noose. So they re attain a new awareness of the universe. So it's a refine, I'd say it's a rather, it's an interesting refinement of the apocalyptic worldview. I mean, you still have the dream of, uh, in, in Asclepius of the end of the world and the senility, as he says, the senility of civilization that's falling apart, that no longer respects God in the universe. Um, but the, the hermetic thing really really puts it much more philosophically and perhaps was more powerful as a result in the long term. Maybe also because individualism has at the time already started to grow and the, the Gnostic, Gnostic uh, view on the world became more an individual Gnostic view than before or would you see that differently? Yeah, I mean clearly there's a sort of, uh, there is, there is The emphasis in the Hermetic writings is on the individual transformation, whereas the emphasis in apocalyptic is of a general transformation. Mm -hmm. Jesus himself, the Jesus teaching of the Gospels, attributed to Jesus, uh, seems to strangely bring the two together. You have the kingdom of heaven is within you, mm. and it's very interesting. Uh, you could see Jesus as a Hermetic apocalyptist. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Eschatologically spoken in, in, any, in any way. Absolutely. And why do you think that the book of Enoch disappeared? Uh, do you see, uh, is it just... Because the new, because, yes, because the, 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 rabbinic, the rabbinic movement post Masada, post Bar Chochba, uh, the, the destruction of the apocalyptic zealot hope and expectation after the flattening of, of Jerusalem and the expulsion of the Jews from Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. I think they, there was a widespread um, Hasidic embarrassment at books that gave hope to 
the end of the world hoopers. And so, of course, as you, you know, that lovely song of Laurie Anderson, uh, when love is gone, there's always justice. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, uh, when justice is gone, there's always mum. Yeah, <laughs> mama. Uh, I think they, they retreated into law. Mm-hmm. The Torah becomes uh, the bastion of the faith because it is more practically applicable and does not require. Uh, a futuristic fulfillment. Um, and you see the same in Islamic extremism. Uh, it, I, it seems to me, although there is a great deal of apocalyptic in that as well. Um, in fact, you could actually, <laughs> we could go on on that one. Yeah, do, do, um, do. <laughs> it seems to me anyway that the zealot hope of the Jews is simply being reproduced in a bizarre way mm. in the in the in the jihadist in jihadist. I can't, I think, calling it philosophy is too... Thought. Too generous. Yeah, yeah. But the, the, enthousi- the enthusiasm mm-hmm. for holy conflict. The Jews, uh, to answer your question, uh, obviously associated the Book of Enoch with an enthusiasm which had destroyed the country. Right. Now, Josephus himself had warned of this. If you read, you know, his account of the wars of the Jews... And his account of the the, the revolt, mm-hmm. the great revolt of sixty three to seventy three, uh, his account of that makes it plain that he believed that the, the Jews had fallen into an enthusiasm, which God did not support. Right. That, you know. So, I mean, in a way, Josephus is a kind of he's paving the way for a, a rabbinic uh, Jewish um, religion mm-hmm. uh, based on piety. Mm-hmm. And uh, pious observance of the law, and by, by by which time, of course, Christianity, as we know it, has been born with a, a mixed apocalyptic spiritual mysticism, yeah. and that's gone into the Roman Empire, fed into the veins, and uh, and of course, and uh, with all the 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 consequences thereof, it sort of escaped from yeah. escaped from this this Jewish situation. What I and, find. Uh, Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, that's enough. <laughs> What I find always very interesting is that we have, we find those texts again, and of course this is not the only text that we find again there, in in Ethiopia. And also when you take parts of the Hiramic legend, we speaking about Gerard de Nerval and his version uh, of the Hiramic legend and the Queen of Sheba, etc. We will, we will have... Um, Ethiopia being in the center of, of revivals of those texts. Um, why, why Ethiopia? Why is it happening there? Oh, I don't, I don't know. As there was a, I, there's no evidence I'm aware of, and, and that's what I'm aware of, that there was a kind of Enochian sect in mm. Ethiopia. I just think it had, Ethiopia was very much cut off from the mm. empire and in the Middle Ages really cut off. And it was just part of the textual tradition that arrived. We do know this, that by the fourth century, um, late antiquity, the Book of Enoch has become a major text in Akmim, uh, that is um, Panopolis, mm-hmm. you know, in Upper Egypt. Mm-hmm. And it's associated with the, the core area of the Gnostic, uh, the Gnostic Gospels. Yes. Um, Thebes and, and Nag Hammadi, all that area, uh, Al-Khazra, and um, it's moving south. 
and I suspect some, perhaps some of the monks who Athanasius condemned in the famous festal letter mm-hmm. of uh, the late 4th century, perhaps moved down to Kush and to Ethiopia mm-hmm. and took their books with them. And I would have thought the, the situation in Ethiopia was any book that had a holy um, reputation, which certainly the Book of Enoch did, sure. because... Uh, our, our lovely alchemist, uh, doesn't he? You know, Zosimos of Panopolis uses the Enochian corpus to justify the position of Hermes in alchemy. Oh, really? In the fourth mm-hmm. century, mm-hmm. which is, by the way, my next work ah, is about okay. the origins of alchemy, because it's uh, you know, Zosimos um, says that this alchemical knowledge came from what we now know as the Nephilim, yeah. that it was a forbidden knowledge brought to earth and therefore should be handled with great piety. Okay. And um, so I, th- I think these, the, you know, when the oppression of Athanasian Christianity and conformity starts to develop in Orthodox Roman, late Roman Empire, the, I would say the intellectual fringe that doesn't conform tends to move into further into Upper Egypt, along with the monastic movement, yeah, which, true. which runs parallel, and you also have the Encratite movement of uh, body body denial. Yeah, and I would have thought Ethiopia was about as far as you could get from a Roman bishop. Mm-hmm. So I would imagine that these texts, they may have come there. Early. They, for all we know, you know, uh, the Book of Enoch may have been received in 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 Ethiopia. In fact in Jesus' time or even before. It's quite possible. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Mm-hmm. What I find fascinating when you when you read through just the chapter titles of that book of, uh, of yours, The Lost Pillars of Enoch, then we come, when we go through the history, uh, through Hermeticism that you mentioned, but of course also through Freemasonry, we come to Newton, you mentioned him and his fellows already, but we come also to Blake and Theosophy in the end, and of course then to Alistair Crowley, right? Um, So um, is that something that you try to find as the red line there, or is it something that comes genuinely through that those thoughts go through all the way into our contemporary philosophy or esoteric philosophy at least? Yes. Yes, <laughs> that's the answer. That's the answer. <laughs> yes, I, clearly. I mean, I think the, the promise of esotericism, mm. which is so often complicated and uh, And the more people write essays about fragments of it, the more complicated it is made. Mm. But the essential message of esotericism is that there, we need an apocatastasis. We need a restoration of the original. Yeah. That man is a fallen uh, being, and the, the our, our knowledge is a mirror that is shattered mm. uh, in in this world and has to be uh, re- recovered and put together again. And in order to put it together, you have to have the experience of a vision of the original. And to me, the pillars of Enoch, as they became called, um, is an emblem of that vision of a primal unity of man and God, which informs the whole hermetic tradition. Once there was a unity of man and God, and that unity has been lost. And... When we talk about a unity of man and God, we're talking about a, a, an epistemological 
union, um, a sharing of consciousness between the divine and man. So there is no between. Mm -hmm. And that is why I talk about the Advaita tradition as part of it in, in India, that there is no substantial difference between the core of our mind in, uh, and, and, the, and, and the divine being. I mean, that's the essential discovery of Gnosis, yes. is the identity of the human spirit with God. I mean, that's, that's, that's the experience one is looking for. And um, the esoteric tradition has been more interested in that, obviously, than the, than the exoteric tradition, which has been about organizing people on a moral and, again, law basis, legal basis. Yeah. They throw in the gospel as a, as, what is it, uh, who said, first God comes and hits you on the head, then the New Testament comes with a, <laughs> with a little, little something to cover it, you know, um, a, a plaster, as we say. Yeah. So yeah. This, whole, this, whole, this whole dichotomy of law and spirituality, the church is based on law, canon law, and the Gnostic tradition is based on divine experience. Now, obviously, the canon lawyer, being a cynic, by nature, because he knows that human beings are weak and fallible and sinful, will always say that this knowledge is uh, is counterfeit, it's unreal. And the suspicion of the mystic, or should we say he's been hidden away? You can be a mystic if you are obscure. You can be a mystic if you're a hermit. You can be a bit... What happens when the mystic breaks out? And what was happening in these periods of history which interest us like the... Florentine Renaissance mm -hmm. is a few of the nutters escaped from the from the asylum and started speaking generally, but of course we had the age of the Enlightenment to shut them all up again, and uh, with the result, I would say, of the rise of fascism, which is the ultimate cynicism. You know, always when I talk to Tobias and uh, I see him here in front of me, because of course I have a little video screen when we do interviews and see my other side, it's much easier to do interviews when you see each other. Um, always when I do that, uh, I feel like I'm with him in his home and we're having a beer together and chatting. It's so easygoing with him and at the same time so extremely interesting. Well, I hope you get the same impression. Um, very grateful he is back with us here. Right, so I promised you some music. And, well, of course, like all the time, you will get your music now. The music you're going to hear now, and that's, of course, related to our subject here, is by Gordiev. Yes, Mr. Gordiev. He is not only a great esotericist, but he also was a composer. And actually, he wrote music, let's put it that way. And then he had some help also to put that music into the right form for orchestra and how it should be written down and all of that. But in, in principle, it is his music. And so today we are going to hear, I think I already played once a piece from him. We're going to hear a, a, a movement, I would say, a movement from... Uh, an orchestra composition that's called Oriental Suite. And the movement that we are going to hear here today is called the Big Seven. So I'm not exactly sure out of the blue uh, what he is referring to when he talks about the Big Seven. It's 
um, certainly related to his philosophy, which is very much related to what we are talking here about today. So the big seven comes now with an orchestra, big orchestra versions. There are also versions for smaller orchestra. I wanted to play for you the big orchestra version. And after that piece of music, we are going to back and talk again to Tobias for the remainder of our interview. And at the very end of the interview, another big composer of the same time, like Mr. Gurdjieff, Eric Satie. Well, he was not an esotericist who wrote also music, but he was a musician who was also an esotericist. Um, more or less, but rather less undercover, Eric Satie, and we're going to hear his piano piece, Sarabande, number one. Um, so... For the moment now, Gordiev's piece called The Big Seven from the Oriental Suite. And actually the guy who helped him realizing that music is called Hartmann, just to be complete here. And after that, we're going to back, gonna go back to Tobias right away. And at the end of the interview, without further talk from my end, you will hear... Eric Satie's Sarabande number one in the piano version. So now enjoy Gordiev's music.
you said that uh, the age of enlightenment shut them up. I find we hear that sentence much too rarely, you know, because because very often, even for Neoplatonism, even for Hermeticism, the age of enlightenment is seen as the as the out coming the outcoming of it that we the development the positive development and i'm with you i see it on the contrary as a very large limitation to the esoteric knowledge can you expand a little bit on that well okay um i remember meeting gillis quispell a late professor he lived in bilthoven in holland He was professor of religion at Utrecht. He was the man who handed the gospel of truth, Evangelium Veritatis, mm -hmm. to Carl Jung. And when Carl Jung received the gospel of truth, uh, he said, all my life I have been searching for the secrets of the psyche, and these people knew already. Mm -hmm. Now, Quispel said to me one, one pleasant afternoon, uh, he said, the Enlightenment was a blackout. And I, I didn't actually ask him to explain it because I, I knew exactly, I'm afraid I, I'd already worked that one out for myself. <laughs> um, the, the reason it was a blackout was not due to uh, any problem with the elevation of reason over superstition. No. And this is the great claim. Superstition is outmoded knowledge, knowledge that no longer applies because we've learned new things. And so certain kinds of knowledge, uh, we don't... Um, You know, we have a more informed view of causation. All right. But the problem was that in the late antiquity, they understood <clears throat> our people, certain Thurgists and Neoplatonists, mystics, Gnostics, mm -hmm. recognized that ratio, the rational faculty, uh, was a useful tool and uh, vital and a gift of the spirit, in fact. But there was something else which the Greeks called nous, nous, nous. Mm -hmm. uh, and this nous is, uh, I always think of it as like a radio telescope in the brain, which is picking up stuff from beyond the atmosphere mm -hmm. and stuff from beyond the sense experience. Now, the British philosophers, uh, uh, or Scottish, actually, as they seem to be, don't they, Hume? And, uh, and then there's John Locke, All say that man's knowledge comes from sense experience alone. And from sense experience, we draw rational conclusions. And the, the whole thing about empiricism, yeah. which leads to positivism, which has dominated our universities because it fit in quite nicely with Aristotelianism, which had always been the dominant philosophy of Western yeah. uh, universities. And the noetic uh, principle... Um, was left for the church and for the religious people and become, becomes a minority sport. By the 20th century, it's not even a minority sport. It's a forbidden interest because of the rise of, the, of technology and the success of the machine age, which is a rational principle. And um, so that's what I mean. I think the age of enlightenment was, was a blackout because... Suddenly, everyone who I've ever found interesting is sidelined. So the best, um, the Bampton Lectures of Oxford, for example, in 1805-1807 are dedicated to criticizing and demolishing the idea of religious enthusiasm mm -hmm. because the old thing is it's religious enthusiasm, spiritual excitement, 
that deludes people. Now, that's in the early 1800s in Oxford, and it excludes people like William Blake and obviously in Europe people like Jacob Berman mm-hmm. and consigns the hermetic tradition, which is based on, well, I've, I've seen the light, <laughs> to a kind of eccentricity. And that's where the Gnostic tradition still is in Western philosophy. Sure. And the money has gone to the scientists and the technologists and the rest of us are supposedly hippie astrologers um, pissing about um, with our own dreams. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, we watch the world becoming senile and absurd, which is what we're faced with daily. Um, And by the way, I would include a large part of the ecological movement in the scientific frame. Uh, I don't think there's much. I remember <laughs> there is a spiritual aspect to the green movement. I had, I had a great deal of involvement with that movement in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a spiritual idea because the hermetic idea that nature is a reflection of the divine. Sure. Um, but if it is a reflection of the divine, we should concentrate on the divine more than putting our faith in nature, I think. I think there's too much of this nature knows best rubbish. Uh, man was dominated by nature for, for thousands of years. And it's only recently we've had any kind of traction, any kind of movement where we've had, you know, a little bit of freedom. You soon find out how shallow human arrogance is when you go on a transatlantic voyage, as I did a few years ago, when it starts to get rough. Okay. And you're out there in the middle of the ocean. I remember sailing over where the Titanic sank. <laughs> the feeling of darkness came over one. Yeah. Partly from, you know, race memory sure. of what had happened there, but also the the terrifying force of nature. Yeah. Now, what's happening at the moment is people are mindlessly stirring up this fear of pan, the terrible fear. When I was a mountaineer, you would feel if you were on a glacier and you felt it move, which you could, mm-hmm. suddenly it would start to move. Mm-hmm. And this this missile of fear would come up through your backside right through you. Right. And you knew you were up against a power that had no end. So I, I'm rather sorry for modern man who is under the illusion he's got a grip on nature and that we actually should release that grip and let nature take over. I, I think we're, 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 we are children in the universe, very much so. Yeah, and um, the spiritual tradition should give us a sense of balance and wisdom. Uh, but how can you have a balance and wisdom when the world is dominated by twenty-four hour journalism? <laughs> it's impossible. We are being brainwashed every second. Every second, yeah. I'm not saying everything they say is untrue, but the trouble is, without perspective, without foreground, without background, you have no sense of dimension. Yeah. And what you have with a news program is a magnification constantly without perspective yeah and I don't want to depend on journalists for truth because I've, I've my experience of journalists is then they're not uh, super impressive they're only when they when they're good they observe what's going on and write about it clearly 
without it, preferably without an emotional content. And then comes the and same then, problem that you have with the 300 pages. If they do that, their editor-in-chief or their marketing yeah. department will tell them, well, I can't yeah, sell we're, this. <laughs> we're, living, we're living under a kind of intellectual fascism, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, that's why we're talking on Foth Hermes and not on you know, the six o'clock news. Absolutely. Absolutely. But we are talking for 3,000 people here. We have heard between us more of interest in the last 20 minutes than the average person will hear from the television in five years. You're absolutely right. I agree. And it's fascinating listening to you. But you you brought us to to that subject that is the subtitle of the book, When Science and Religion Were One. And I wanted to pick you up on, on one thing that you said earlier. You said that science and religion were one um, before those first great civilizations, before the Babylonian, Sumerian, etc. civilizations. Um, hasn't, when, when one doesn't think that far, um, one would even say during Egypt and during Babylon, exactly, it was still one, or, or where did the split happen? What was the split that you mean by that? Um, where did it fragment? What, the, the idea of, of science, science and religion really being one, yes. Mm. Well, I don't really think it happens. I mean, obviously, the Greeks. Well, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Agreed that. The, the, the Greeks uh, compre- created a lot of dialectical complexity. Yes about the issue but I still think um, certainly in the Platonist tradition there, there was a, a, a feeling that what you experienced was true mm. and, and that what you experienced in the universe was a, a, a reception of a power which was beyond the human ordinary human intellect to fathom mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that it was a good thing to get in touch with that power and that that was the only source of enlightenment uh, but I don't think the Platonist tradition ever excluded observation of nature but there yeah. was a general obviously in Platonism there is a general suspicion that nature is really uh, at the bottom of the food chain and you'd better go to the top of it mm. and, and, dwell, and dwell in the eternal yeah. in the kingdom of the heavens. Yeah. And obviously Christianity cannot survive without Platonism. Uh, it is a Platonist, it's a Platonist religion. And whenever it's been become Aristotelian, it's always oppressive. Uh, because Aristotle was not interested in the experience of the divine. He was interested in a, a rational formulation. That's, I mean, I'm talking very broadly. But the, the, the emphasis in Aristotelian philosophy is on formulating these these insights in a formal and rational manner, mm-hmm. logical mm-hmm. manner. Mm-hmm. In the uh, Platonic tradition, which is allegedly influenced by Egypt, the important thing is to experience the source of the universe. And uh, yeah, uh, there we are. So where did the split come? Well, the, the split comes in any person who decides that the the intuitive spiritual viewpoint is less important than what you personally observe. Mm. So if you observe bad things happening, you know, it, it may depress you and so forth or cut off your vision. Um, but obviously the main, the main 
breach, the main the main conflict occurs um, probably probably in the 16th, 17th century, the yeah. so-called Enlightenment, age of reason, whatever you want to call yeah. it. Um, and yet, there are there were good things in that too, because sure. as I say, the sure. you know the, it was a good thing that people examined their belief systems. I think. I mean, Kant, who has been abused like all, all philosophers of that period are abused, wasn't saying don't believe or something. He he was saying that reason cannot cannot account for the truths of religion. Yes. And therefore reason, you know, but unfortunately that was taken by some, by opponents of religion as being, well, religion is not rational. Yeah. He never said religion was not rational. He said it was, it, it, it could not be, it was not the result of a rational process. Well, of course it isn't. No, of course not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but uh, obviously one, in, in a closed universe, you, you feel safer in a closed universe, and the rational universe presents us with a closed universe. And uh, in that, what Blake would call a prison, the, the satanic mills, the, you know, we're all part of this great logical machine. Um, for some people, that's very comforting to think that it all works like that. My, if you ask me my view, I'd say the universe is... is the structure of it is rational, but human life isn't rational at all. At all, we we, we live it every day, don't we? <laughs> I, 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 you know, it's so funny to watch a meeting of politicians trying so hard to conform, either in their dress, their physical movements, or their speech, to something that you can tell when you look at them that is actually not them. It's yeah. not. It's outside of them. Yeah, yeah, and it's getting more them. and more like that in a way, right? Yeah, they, they, they resemble, um, uh, what's the maquette, pu pu puppets, mm -hmm. uh, people, you know, models in a shop window. Yeah. yeah. They more and more they resemble these parodies of themselves. They're so worried about the image, you see, the image. And they are the taught icon. the movements in LP and all that to... to, to they're un yeah, they're unreal, you know. Human beings are messy and mad and crazy and... Uh, given to all kinds of outpouring, some of which are, are not worth examining, some of which are very profound. You know, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I want to live in a hermetic universe, but I don't. So yeah. How, how could we live in a hermetic universe? What should happen? What would need to happen that, well, maybe not, let, let's be modest. Well, what would need to happen is what the Book of Enoch said had happened, which unfortunately hasn't happened, which is the, the darker forces, uh, which he promised from Mount Hermon in mm -hmm. the Book of Enoch, mm -hmm. which is interesting where Jesus goes to declare his war on Satan. Absolutely. Uh, he goes there, I'm sure, because he's read the Book of Enoch and he mm -hmm. knows that's the place to go because it's the source of the River Jordan, mm -hmm. the Holy River. And he goes there, you know, uh, which is also a temple of Pan, by the way, at that time. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And... Uh, I think, uh, yeah. I'm, what was I saying? <laughs> yes, if we could, if we could chain up the evil forces, that'd be fine. Uh, but we can't. So uh, the truth is, well, our, our mysticism is guaranteed by uh, other people's force. 
Mm. I did say this to the Green Party in Germany back in the 80s. I said, you live in a very small area of freedom. And that freedom is guaranteed for you by the very things that you hate. And if you provoke it too much, you will find that you have even less freedom. <laughs> they, will take, they will take a version of what you're saying and incorporate it with their own system and you won't even recognize the result. And that's exactly what's that's happened. That's exactly what happened. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that's very interesting. That's very interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, in a way, the motto that Crowley put on, on his writings reflects the science and religion relationship in a, in a new way. Does it for you relate to that problem of the separation? Does he try to reunite the two or is, is his aim completely different? I think Crowley is unique as a so-called occultist. And I don't think he really was an occultist. Um, and it's difficult to say what he was. <laughs> But I think Crowley was unique that he would not do, he refused to accept an occult uh, conception of the universe or man that was not scientifically proven. Yeah. Whereas nearly every one of his generation and the generation before, the Blavatsky generation, mm -hmm. were at war with science. True. Crowley was not. Mm. He believed that science was liberating. His whole that starts about sex, which is his most dynamic yeah. Yeah. influence. Yeah. yeah. His, whole, his whole stance is based on the idea that this is a subject that we have hardly explored. Yeah, that it needs to be analyzed and explored scientifically, and which means, of course, in the in the in the proper sense uh, of his tradition, which is the Magian tradition, it must be experienced. It must be experienced, analyzed, and understood mm. uh, by you know competent and people who are initiated sufficiently to divorce their personal emotions from what they're doing. Now, he saw himself as that sort of person. He's very, he's extremely scientific. I, I found, I was sent a fascinating thing from 1940, no, it was about 1938. He was living, he was living in a house in, in South London. Mm -hmm. And the, I, I, I saw the original um, documents that of, uh, like a census of him living there and the details of who was living in the house. And he, he gave his occupation as Alistair Crowley, writer, psychiatrist. Really? Yeah. That, that, that I've never heard of. Yeah. So he, yeah. he really saw himself as a, yeah, as a scientist of that. For him, yeah. for him uh, everything he did really was about trying to understand the human mind. And the, the, mod, the, the, the representation of Crowley in, in media is so very, 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 very far yeah. from what he was himself. You know, uh, he, he was, as far as he was concerned, he was an experiential explorer. He just had this conception that, the, that that's why he called it magic with a K, mm -hmm. that he was the Magian tradition. In other words, he's going back to the time when spirit and matter Uh, when science and religion are one. Yeah, exactly. That. That, yeah, that's that's the theme of my book. Is yeah, that's where we've got to get back to. That's going to be our apocatastasis. Mm -hmm. We're living at the moment in an absurd uh, uh, conflict. There is only truth and error. You know, a thing is either true or it is 
and, and erroneous. And this is the, the scientific principle. Jesus put it in, as, as, as Adam Hasselmeyer, the enthusiast of the Rosicrucian, said, seek and ye shall find. That is Jesus's message. Mm -hmm. Seek, explore, you know. And when you know something, you become inventive. Uh, when, the moment you know something new, you always start to invent something. And that's how we move forwards. Yeah. That's the dynamism of the spirit. That's the kingdom of heaven that from a little mustard seed creates a tree that all the birds come and rest in, as Jesus put it. You have to have this seeking. Uh, Paracelsus understood this. He was, that's why he revolutionized medicine. And we're losing this. We're losing it because of this appalling reliance on, on conventional um, uh, conformity and, and, and rational process. But the big God, words like appropriate, I hate them. <laughs> Don't tell me a thing is inappropriate. Tell me it's wrong. Yeah. Tell me it's an error. Yeah. Exactly. If you're capable, show me why it's an error. Yeah, yeah. That's about like at the end of the day. I hate that expression also. It's, it's well, there is no end of the exactly. day. Exactly. There you are. <laughs> there you are. Uh, but why the religious part is often seen as so wrong by the, by the other side, so to speak, because so many people go to literal by the word and not by the meaning they are taking the word i i don't mean the logos i mean just the written word right uh, and and take it for granted without looking behind the word and what made the word i i don't know if yeah, i, well, I, I mean, make myself I mean, understood but uh, spiritual, spir yeah okay spiritual um spiritual advancement yeah uh, like any craft is not democratic Yeah. You are not, you are not, nobody is entitled to know anything. Yeah. I'm sorry, you Democrats and mm. communists. Mm -hmm. um, you know, nobody, and not everybody is born with the same capacity. Yeah. Uh, for any uh, thing, I'd say horses for courses. Um, society should be organized according to the natural capacity of the individual. But you need to have people at the top who have the wisdom, experience, and level of insight to be able to discern uh, how, to, how to best encourage the gifts. Everybody has some gift or other. Mm -hmm. like, I guess I suppose there must be a handful of people who are completely void, I don't know. But, the, but in, in, on the whole, everybody has something to offer yeah. if, if they find the outlet for it at the right time. And there are so many wonderful gifted teachers today And I've always been, but there's never enough, of course, like there are never enough good doctors mm -hmm. uh, to, to help people on their way in this great chaos of life. Um, but cert certainly, um, it, this isn't it, it, spirit, spiritual knowledge and that are not, are not things that you can just pass on uh, democratically. D democracy is a joke. I mean, let's face it. I mean, mm. the, the notion that that everybody's more or less the same is, is sort of one of those truisms that's terribly dangerous. Mm. Um, the idea that we should be able to get rid of our leaders, I think that's perfectly acceptable. I, li I like that, whether it's through voting or just kicking them up the backside. Um, <laughs> ideally, of course, we want to move towards a situation where the, the, uh, there's a reasonable population that can lead themselves, that are law unto themselves, but there will always be people who are much better serving Uh, and, and serving others than 
having responsibility for others. Yeah. You know, most people can only take responsibility for themselves. And, and I, I mean, if you look at the divorce things, most people can't take even responsibility for their own children. True. Yeah. These days, yeah. they, they yeah. seem to find that's too problematic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, which is supposed to be a natural gift. Yes. But even, you know, the, the, the uneducated, if you like, can do. So, uh, no, I think democracy is, a I think, as Churchill said, it's a defense against tyranny. And that's fine. Yeah. But it can produce other forms of tyranny. Yeah. But we shouldn't, of course, just, but we should never be kid ourselves of relativity that, uh, you know, that certain kinds of tyrant, you know, are acceptable because of the weakness. Democracy is a weak machine. There's no doubt of it. Mm. But uh, thank God we don't live in a sultanate. Yeah. Yeah, sure. You know, yeah. Sure. Um, Definitely. But we, 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 but, but we shouldn't deify democracies. If it's, I loathe this nonsense about the sacredness. Yeah. It's yeah. not sacred. It's practical. It's practical. It's, yeah, it, yeah. it's a practical system. We have. I'm prepared to be governed by people whose intelligence I don't respect. I don't mind. They have their chance. I hope they learn from their mistakes, yeah. as I have to learn from mine, which yeah. are many. You know, but uh, mm -hmm. oh God, I do wish people didn't take it all so damn seriously. <laughs> well, we, we, because it, it's to presume that man has reached a point where we should take ourselves seriously. I don't think. I still think we're in the childhood. The childhood of our um, development. Spiritual development, definitely. Yes. We're not, I, I hate pretentiousness. Um, some people have evolved a bit. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. but you go and see them at home how they are with the children. You know. <laughs> Gauguin was a great painter, but he was lousy to his, his family. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Wagner was, uh, for example. Yeah, exactly. but no, yeah. We're not, we're not, we have this godlike potential. But it's only potential. Absolutely. And it's only we, men. <laughs> it's, yeah. But we must, we, we should try. Yeah, we? definitely. Do, yeah. I my, have job, to... my job, I write books simply to inspire, simply to inspire people who want to try. Absolutely. That's why I do. Absolutely. I have to ask you this. Um, you said in the beginning that those two pillars were built to survive a apocalypse or a kind of apocalypse the floods the fire the whatever judgment. the judgment yes the judgment um one could feel an apocalyptic time sometime in the time we live in are we just exaggerating because we are so egocentric or do you have the impression that we are at the moment approaching something similar to the judgment Well, um, according to the Bible, after the great flood, Jesus, uh, sorry, excuse me, God yeah. gave the gift of the rainbow yeah. to say he'd made a covenant with mankind mm. that he wouldn't do it again. Yep. Well, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I think half of me would say, uh, We have just frustrated God's uh, attempt to reduce the population. Um, but he'll come back with something better that we won't have, uh, <laughs> we won't be able to find a vaccine for. Yeah. Uh, and it could, you know. Um, or the other part of me says that, of course, you know, all, the, all these cataclysms of 
water and fire have occurred for thousands of years. And yeah. if you read the Timaeus of Plato, he talks about the regular conflagrations mm -hmm. of the world and the overpowering of the world through water, especially yeah. flooding. Yeah. So yeah. that was written 300 plus years before Christ. Mm. I, we now have 24-hour news of what's going on in the Philippines. Well, they, our ancestors didn't have this. They only yeah. knew that yeah. next door was flooded yeah. or the village down the road. Or a few years later, they might hear about something that happened in another country. So I think I think today we are we are apocalypticizing everything. I think the I sometimes wonder if all the journalists haven't become Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, dedicated to the the dangerous art of alarming people that the forces of nature are becoming angrier than they used to be. Yeah, I don't really see that at all. I think the forces of nature are fairly consistent. Yeah, yeah. I'm, it may be that our use of uh, industrialization on a mass scale, especially in China with a great dependence on coal, has, is causing a pollution which is raising the temperature of the earth. Yeah. Yes, I think that's given our knowledge of science at the moment, mm. that makes a lot of sense. And one would like to think the Chinese were rational enough to actually uh, think about our alternative energies. But the notion, yes, no, I, but I don't accept the end of the world notion. No. It might be the end of the world. It may be that God, if you want to, you know, is finishing it off, in which case I would suggest we stop worrying about it and have a good time while we're here. Yeah, definitely. Because if, if he has decided that we're, we're irredeemably sinful and, um, you know, there are too many of us, and we'll let him get on with it. Yeah. You know, that's his. He, if he's the Lord of the Universe, he can wipe it out. What the yeah. What the hell? Yeah, you know? exactly. Exactly. He, he, he runs it. I'm only here alleged, according to the theory because he exists. Well, if he wants to destroy it, then get on destroy it. Yeah. I just say. I just say. I don't think that we are in a in a childish concept of God like that. I'd like to think that was the case. Absolutely. And I'd like to think that wiser minds try to understand what's happening um, in real terms, not what's happening on the news, what's happening literally in life. And I think you'll find if people uh, um, started to live with, with more consideration for what they're doing, there will be some improvements. And, that, and that's it. But I, I think we've always, I think man has always been poised on an apocalypse. You know, it's our, 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 our existence on the planet has always been relative. Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. we may only be a space. I don't know, but I, I tell. But what you would have thought, wouldn't you? After all this COVID stuff, thank you, China. <laughs> uh, you would have thought, after all this COVID stuff, that there would have been a unity in the world. But of course, this is what my book's about. On what principle exactly. could the world unify? Yeah. If it yeah. unifies out of fear and fear alone, which yeah. is what yeah. Greta Thunberg thinks we should do, yeah. we should all be terrified of the earth, yeah. the sky is falling, yeah. we should be insanely worried and do anything. Um, you know, I, 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 life won't be worth living anyway. I would be courageous enough to say, I don't care about the future right. if yeah. we're going to start living that way. Absolutely. And with you, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, we should be living in a more beautiful way, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. 
Well, obviously, if we have, I mean, I know we're supposed to be talking about hermetic philosophy, and I'm sure some some listeners will probably think, "Oh God, I wish they'd stop talking about politics." I can get that on the news. (laughs) But I would say today that um, there is a need for the esoteric to get out into the world and do a bit of work. Yes. Definitely, definitely. And we underline that, double underline that phrase now, Tobias. We're coming towards the end of our talk, I must say. We were uh, talking today about your 23rd book, I believe. No, it's 26, actually. 26, I think. Okay, okay. So then it's wrong on your website, I must say. It doesn't matter. (laughs) No, anyway, so it was number 26. So tell tell (laughs) tell us briefly about 27, 28, and maybe 29. All right. Um, I apologize for this because it it didn't happen the way I wanted it. Uh, so my last book to come out was the 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 Pillars of Enoch. Mm. Uh, then I then I uh, then I had a feeling that there was a missing Crowley biography. Yeah, just, uh, just which, remind people that we you you published uh, Crowley in in USA, in Berlin, and in India so far, right? Yes, mm-hmm. and the original Crowley biography. And the original book. big one, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's really a question of the information that has, is at my disposal has increased enormously, mm-hmm. and these single volume biographies of Crowley, all of them, including mine, are totally inadequate. Well, totally inadequate if you want to get the, a, a really good, a, a clear picture. Mm-hmm. I would take my example as Martin Gilbert's eight-volume biography of Churchill. Mm-hmm. And um, I always thought Crowley was worth it, personally. I know some people would say not for all sorts of reasons. But I think, I hope my books prove to people that there is a, there is a great story to be told. So I've done... Uh, Coming out in January is a book called The Alistair Crowley in England, The Return of the Great Beast. Mm-hmm. Crowley was exiled in his own country from 1932 to his death in 1947 and could not, could not get out of the country. The government wouldn't give him a visa to go to America to his followers in the 40s, and he, he spent uh, all that time, his last years, coping with, with Britain in the Depression mm. and then World War II. And that story has never been told in, in anything like the detail it, it deserves. It's an extraordinary story. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's all true. Anyway, so I did that. And then the next book I wanted to do was the one I'm doing now, which is I wanted to write on the origins of alchemy. Right. And which is also, again, about hermeticism, obviously. Uh, but when I put, I put in five proposals to my publisher and the one at the end was uh, an idea which had come to me through talking to a, a good friend in Paris. And he said to me, why haven't you done Crowley in Paris? I thought, oh God, you're right. You are so right. That is a story that, you know, yeah. he was living there for years. You know, Absolutely. He, was, he first... Lived, started to live there seriously in 1902. He was there in 1903. He was back in 1904. He was there in 1905, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. My God, yes. And then he went to live there permanently from 1924 to 1929. How the hell did I miss that? It's so yeah. obvious. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, 
So I put that in as the end, and I was hoping they wouldn't go for that. But the publisher said, oh, we want that. And I thought, oh, God, people are going to say, Churton can do nothing but write about Crowley. That's all he knows. You know, he's obsessed. He's obsessed with Alistair Crowley. It must, must be something sick in his brain, you know. And I, and I said, well, are you sure you wouldn't want that? He said, well, you can maybe, maybe next, you know. So I thought, I, I'm taking a price for this because I, I know there are people out there who can't stand what I do for all sorts of reasons. And I thought, okay, I'll probably get a rap for doing Crowley again. But I, it, it, I can only say this in my, my defense. It is the last, <laughs> the last of the Crowley things. Because I, while one could do Crowley in Russia, Crowley in China, in Crowley Sicily. in Africa, yes. yeah, Crowley in Italy, yeah. Crowley in Egypt. Those are all covered, I think, yeah, adequate, adequately yeah. Yeah. Uh, by the existing corpus, whereas Paris really hasn't been. And writing this book, the Paris book, which will be out in, I don't know, about 18, 16 months or something, mm -hmm. um, has been amazing. I think it's, I'm glad it's, it's the best of the lot, I think. That's a personal thing you're hearing on Thoth Hermes, but I'm not knocking my other, obviously. <laughs> but I, I just found so, so much that was hugely illuminating that nobody had, had touched on. And it was a wonderful discovery. Yeah. But I always find that with Crowley. Every, every, every time I go back, there's wonderful dimensions. He, he really is a fascinating biographical subject, uh, yeah, challenging sure. in the extreme. Also because he was so controversial that you have to to find truth somewhere, right? Well, I, I spent a long time last week talking to his grandson in, in California, which was absolutely fascinating. Okay. Mm. I mean, his mother was born at Chefler. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So... Um, we are going oh, well, to be, we are going to have uh, your annual talk on Thor's Hermes next year on on Crowley again, I guess, then or, or on alchemy, whatever we can choose there. Well, and of course, the book I'm going to start in the new year is is the origins of alchemy. Exactly. But do you think people do you think people want to hear about Alistair Crowley? Well, I'm sure they want to hear from you about Elsa Crowley again, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Toby, you just said that writing that book was highly illuminating, I think you said. Um, I think our talk was highly illuminating as well, and thank you for it. Um, really enjoyed that, and I'm sure people won't tell, shut up about politics. I think they're like, they love talking, listening to you and hearing what you have to say. Thank you for your time again. And as I said, I warn you, I believe it won't be the last time. I look forward to the next one. Okay. Rudolf, of all people I speak to, you're, you're the one I most look forward to. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Toby. I'll leave that in the show. I warn you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Toby. Speak soon. Thanks, Rudolf.
Eric Satie, Sarabande, number one. Well, Eric Satie, you should listen to more of his music if you're interested in spiritual and esoteric music, of course. Agnostic uh, music, I would call it. He was a member of occult groups in France at the time, late 19th century. And his music certainly, at least partly, reflects that. Okay, gents, that was the interview with Tobias Churton. A lovely talk again. And as always with Tobias, we get into talking about the whole world and its meaning. And I really like that. Um, yeah, if you want to listen to his previous interviews, there are three of them on the Thought Hermes podcast. And you should really go back. Two of them are about his books on Crowley that he mentioned towards the end of the show. And I can promise you as much once the Crowley's books will be out. So the once the series is going to be complete, when the Paris book will come out that he just mentioned, I assure you, he will be back on this show. And I am sure you will like the idea. Right, wonderful. That was episode number six already of season seven. Isn't time flying? That was also our 98th episode. You know what's coming. 99. Yes, exactly. Next week, 99 is coming and 99. Um, another return. This, this season, I have a few returns because there are people we have not had here for three years or so. Show is running over four and a half years now. You know that. Amazing. Four and a half years of Thought Hermes podcast. And so in back in 2017, I believe it was, um, we had Jamie Paul Lamb on here. And um, next week he's going to be back. Uh, it's a kind of partly Masonic episode, but not entirely. Because um, he has written two books which have by the Southern California Research Lodge who are issuing each year a list of the most important Masonic books that will that have appeared on the market. But this year they did the most important Masonic books of the century so far, so of the last 20 years. And Jamie Paul Amps two books had two books on that list um, on the, of the best 20, I believe, books it is. We're going to talk about that in detail, about his two latest book, actually, who made it onto that list. Um, and you're going to see that uh, even if there are Masonic books and deeply rooted in Masonic masonry, they are not at all Masonic only. They have very, very much uh, general occult interest because uh, Jamie Paul Lamb mostly talks and writes about um, the mystery traditions and the Western esoteric and occult tradition as it as we find it in contemporary masonry. So um, I think it will be very exciting to have him here back. And we're I mean, already looking forward to that next week. And well, in two weeks, I'm not telling you yet who will be our guest then, but it will be our episode number 100 that will be a new guest this time episode number 100 a uh, very special guest i'm really very much looking forward to that as well but you have to wait for a week before i will tell you okay okay guys uh, this was our episode for today and looking forward to have you back next week thank you for listening and for today i tell you take care Stay tuned, hear you soon.